Amen. Thank you, John. And so good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, and it's good to be with you this morning. We are, for these four weeks of Advent, taking a tour through some of the highlight passages in the prophet Isaiah because we were in the prophet Isaiah all fall. So we're kind of going back through and looking at the passages that are explicitly messianic, that, that explicitly point us forward to the coming of Jesus, which of course is what we celebrate at Christmas. And this morning we come to Isaiah chapter 11. It'll be familiar to many of you and you'll see how, uh, how, how clearly it does take us by the hand uh, to the Lord Jesus himself. So if you would read with me, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, we're going to read through verse 14 and then skip to chapter 12 which really goes with chapter 11, and read a few verses from there as well. So hear God's word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he, his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adler's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea, and he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the jealousy of Ephraim shall part. And those who harass Judah shall be cut off, and Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to the Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Have you ever been to a political rally? I have not. I really don't have any plans to, but I have been to a college football game or two, quite a few over my time, and to be honest, it's basically the same thing. A crowd of people who've been brought together by a common loyalty to a cause or a belief or to a team, and they travel at their own expense, they take the time to do, to do it, they wear the team gear, they make signs, and they cheer and they chant and they applaud, and there's energy and everybody is whipped into a frenzy because... They're there, or in being there, they've become inspired by belonging to something bigger than themselves, and so they're motivated, and a rally is meant, a rally or a game is meant to take a base, a fan base, you know, a political base, and to energize them and whip them into a frenzy and motivate them to go out 
and do the things that you need for them to do. Now, that's what Isaiah is doing here in chapter 11. He's trying to rally us, to motivate us, but he's doing it with hope, with a vision of the future that God is moving the world towards, a future that is different and better than anything we experience in, in this world. James K. Smith has made the observation that we are motivationally pulled more than we are pushed. We're pulled by what's ahead more than we are pushed from behind. Motivationally, that's the way motivations work in our, in our hearts. He said, you know, we're all in search of Camelot. We're all being pulled into the future by some version on our heart of the future kingdom, the hoped for, longed for, dreamed of picture of the good life that lays out there in front of us somewhere. And that's exactly what you have here. That's what Isaiah is doing here in chapter 11. In Isaiah 11, everything is future. All of the verbs are future tense. He says a number of times, you see it in verse 11 and in verse 10, he says, in that day, in that day. And then chapter 12, verse one, you will say in that day. So he's pointing us to a day in the future when everything that he talks about here will become reality. And so he's motivating us. He's rallying us together under the banner of Jesus to motivate us towards the future. And here's what I want to say. If you want to know what this passage is really about, here's the doctrine, as the old the preachers from long ago would say. The doctrine of this text this morning is this, that Jesus is deserving of your enthusiasm. He is deserving of your enthusiasm because of the future that he promises us. And what we have to face, what we are confronted with, if we're honest, is that there's something very wrong with us. That it is so much easier for us to feel the thrill of a political rally or a college football game than the thrill of rallying to this vision of the kingdom come. It's what we're confronted with. But here's what we've got to make sense of. Jesus here is not just saying to us that he wants our obedience he wants more than our obedience. He wants our want to. He wants, he wants chapter 12. You need to read chapter 12. We didn't have time to do that, but go, because chapter 12 is the response to chapter 11. And in chapter 12, here are all the verbs that are, given, that are given to us. The response to chapter 11 in chapter 12 is this. He wants, this is what Jesus wants. He wants us to be singing, shouting, giving thanks, rejoicing, making known, proclaiming, trusting, all of those things are there. That's what he wants. He wants that from you. He wants that kind of enthusiasm from you. He wants to be your song. He wants to be your joy. He is deserving of your enthusiasm and mine because of the future that he promises us here. Now, so my, my uh, job this morning is just that, to be the, the one whipping us into the right motivation, right? Rallying us to this cause. And we see here that we can be inspired by a number of things. Really what we're told here is that there are, there are two things that inspire us and then the responses to rally to him. You can see the character of the king and then the kingdom of the king. We're given both of those. In chapter, chapter 11, 1 through 5, we see the character of the king. Beginning in verse 6, we see the kingdom of the king. And then beginning in verse 10, we see that we're rallying to the king, that we should be people who are rallying to the king because of the beauty of his character and the power of his kingdom. And so let's just walk through the text together along those headings. Will you with me? And you'll see there the, the three points of the outline that I've given to you. So first, let's talk about the character of the king, because it is the character of the promised king here that makes him worthy of your enthusiasm. The future will be different because the coming king who will rule, rule the future, he will be a different kind of king than the world has ever known. 
The first image we meet with in chapter 11, verse 1, is a stump. Do you see that? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a tree stump. For the first 15 years of our marriage, our family lived in a house in Garden Grove neighborhood. And we had three oak trees at that house. When we bought the house, uh, in what, when did we buy the house? 2001, I guess, maybe? 2000? Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, probably those trees were probably planted by John Wood himself in the mid-70s. Who knows? Uh, but uh, by the time we sold the house in 2015 or so, only one of those three trees remained because all the oak trees that were planted by John Wood in the 70s are falling down every time a storm comes through now. And we had one that we lost in Hurricane Charlie. It came right through the ceiling of the boys' bedroom in the back of the house. The second came down years later just in a regular storm, at least part of it did, right onto the corner of our house near the master bedroom. But that second tree was this massive oak tree that was right square in the middle of our front yard. It was huge and it was beautiful and it shaded the whole house. And we had a swing that the kids swung on for years and years when they were little that came down from that tree. And I remember, of course, when part of it fell, it, mean, it meant it was rotten. So we had to cut the rest of it down. And I remember when they cut the rest of that tree down and all that was left was this huge stump. We cried. At least Ashley did. I don't know if the rest of us did. <laughs> <laughs> if I could dig up the picture, I know we took pictures of our stump that used to be this tree, that was in the, but it was just, we, it was so sad because that tree had shaded us for so many years and we loved it as much as you can love a tree, I suppose. And then it was just a stump. It was this ugly thing in the middle of our yard. And that's the image here. The kings of Israel, David's sons and grandsons and generations of great-grandsons and great-great-great-great-great-grandsons, they had all failed. All that was left was a stump. And the Old Testament scriptures put a lot of hope in the Davidic line for the people of God. But by the time Isaiah wrote around 720 B.C., 700 B.C., so 400 years or so after the promise that God made to David and to his, to his sons, David's house had been reduced to a stump. It was a failed project. There was nothing left. There was once this big, beautiful tree of a hope of a future, and all that was left was this ugly stump. But what he says here is from that stump, Isaiah said, there would be a shoot that would come forth. There would be life that would spring out of that failed project of David's line, a branch from David's roots, a future son of David, a king. And he... He would be the one who would not fail. He would be different than all of the rest of David's sons in a number of key ways. And you see them there first. It says that he would be filled with God's spirit. So look at verses 2 and 3. It says the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. All that language means that he would be endowed divinely by divine power and might and wisdom, that he would not rule by his own wisdom or strength, but supernaturally empowered by God, supernatural wisdom, supernatural strategic thinking and problem solving, that's counsel and might, verse two, their military tactical words, supernatural intuition, verse three, the ability to distinguish between appearance and reality. Nothing would get by him. He would not be fooled by outward appearance. He would see right to the heart. Supernatural humility, the fear of the Lord and all that language there in verses 3 and 4. Now, you don't find all of that together in one person, typically. 
Some people are temperamentally commanding. Others are temperamentally humble and gentle. But never, never, as you begin to read that list, are all of those things found in a single person. But they would be in this king. That's the point he's making. Because God's spirit would be upon him to supernaturally animate him and to be developing all of these character qualities in him. The spirit of the Lord would be upon him, it says. It would rest upon him. Now, in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus Christ came to the Jordan. We read uh, from Mark earlier about this, but in Matthew 3, he came to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John the Baptist. And as he came up out of the water there at the Jordan, it says, and here I'm quoting Matthew 3, it says, the heavens were opened and the spirit of God descended and came to rest upon him. Now it's the exact same language as here in, uh, in Isaiah 11. And so very clearly, the one that we're being told of here is the one that we come to know in Jesus Christ at the beginning of the Gospels. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon entitled, this was the title of the sermon, The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. Now, I am a full proponent of bringing back sermon titles like that. (laughs) But here's what he was saying. His point was this, that in Jesus, like this king, in Jesus, qualities that are typically incompatible, they come together. And that is his unique beauty. That's what's so inspiring about him, that he is the lion of Judah and the lamb of God. And a lion excels in strength, but not gentleness. A lamb excels in meekness, but not ferocity. But Jesus is pictured as both in Revelation chapter 5. He is infinitely great and infinitely good. He is the embodiment of grace and truth. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, but he is gentle and lowly in heart. At the same time, he is the most high, but he became the most low. And that's what we're being told here. Who Jesus was, his person, was just as wonderful and miraculous as what he did, his works. Who he was is just as wonderful and miraculous as his works, as is what he did. The, per- the beauty of his person is inspiring. And I'll be honest, I, I, I talked to somebody about this this week, that in my darkest moments of doubt and unbelief, and I do have them, in those really dark moments of just not knowing whether any of this stuff that I say and I stand up in front of people and talk about every week is true, it is the person of Jesus that is the light that pierces into my darkness. I can't make sense of him other than that he is, in fact, who he says he is. There is no one else like him. I've never met someone like him. But the question becomes, do you know him? Do you know him? The way you get to know a friend and their person becomes a comfort to you. Do you know him like that? I love this quote from Edwards in that sermon. It really is worth your time. The admirable conjunction of divine excellencies in Christ Jesus. Here's what he says. If Christ accepts you, you need not fear but that you will be safe for he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come... You need not fear, but that you shall be accepted, for he is like a lamb to all who come to him and received with infinite grace and tenderness. It is true. 
He has awful majesty. He is the great God and infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and to embolden the poor sinner that Christ is man as well as God. He is creature as well as the creator. He is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him because he will certainly be graciously and meekly in receiving you. Though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but to you he will be a lamb. The idea that there is a king that you might owe allegiance to might be terrifying to you. Sin is the desire to serve only ourselves. Milton's line rings true uh, in Paradise Lost. Better to rule in, in, in hell than to serve in heaven. But here's my question to you. What if the king to whom you owe all of your allegiance was like this. There's another thing before we move on. He would not only be full of God's spirit, but he would be righteous. That word really starts to come front and center as you go into verses four and five. With righteousness, he shall judge the, for the poor and decide with equity for the meek. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So there are all kinds of, there are all kinds of imbalance in the world. And the reason there is such imbalance in the world is because the kings of the world have not used their power to make the crookedness straight. The scales of the world tilt towards the rich and the powerful and the connected. And it was the job assignment of the kings of Israel, God's servants. It was the job assignment from God that they were to use their power, their own power, their own position, their own resources, their own wealth to balance things out. But they did not. They were unrighteous. They advantaged themselves at the expense of others. And we see this all over the place. Typically, the more power or position a person gets, the more they use it to their own advantage, to secure, to keep that advantage. And typically in organizations, most of the corruption is at the top. The people who, because of their position, should have the most character and integrity, they actually have the least because the power that they hold has corrupted them. They've gotten so used to using the resources that they have access to for their own gain that as their influence increases and their access to resources and privilege increases, their corruption increases. But Isaiah said there would be a king who would come and act righteously, this king, would use his power and resources, not for selfish gain, but to bring down the mighty from their thrones and to lift up the poor from the dust and create equity. Instead of advantaging himself at the expense of others, he would disadvantage himself for the sake of others. And so again, we're taken right by the hand to Jesus. Mary, if you remember, in Luke chapter 1, she prophesied at his birth that it would balance out the scales, that his throne... His throne would scatter the proud and bring down the mighty from their thrones. That he would exalt the humble and fill the hungry with good things and while the poor went away empty. That there would be a correction to the imbalance in the world caused by the oppression of the rich and the powerful. Now that's, that's an implication of the gospel. It is not the gospel. It flows from the gospel. But this is an important Christian ideology. The gospel is this, that from love for God and his people, Jesus has achieved righteousness for all who believe in him. He has acted righteously by willingly disadvantaging himself for the sake of others. And his righteousness can be accounted to all who stop trusting in themselves and believe in him instead. Now we talked about how the person of Jesus was beautiful and inspiring, but now we need to talk about his works too. The imagery of clothing, do you see that righteousness will be his belt and so forth? That clothing imagery expresses his capacities and purposes. The belt 
It symbolizes his readiness to act because before a warrior would go to battle in the ancient world, they would gather up their garments with a belt so that they could maneuver in hand-to-hand combat. And the heart of the gospel is just this, that Jesus Christ took upon himself our sin and gives to us his righteousness. In his life, he won righteousness that he gives as a gift. And in his death on the cross, he bore the punishment for our sins that was ours to bear. He was treated as our sins deserved, though he himself was innocent of all crimes against God, so that we could be treated as his status with God and his obedience deserves, though we are undeserving. He willingly, lovingly disadvantaged himself for our sake at the cost of his own life. Have you ever met a king like that? So both his person and his work His beauty, when you see it, you realize it deserves your enthusiasm. But secondly, not just the character of the king, but also the kingdom of the king. The kingdom of the king is worthy of your enthusiasm too, because the future will be different because the coming kingdom, it will be something different than the world has ever seen or known before. We talked about the king's beauty, but let's talk about the king's power, his sway. Dallas Willard has defined kingdom as the range of God's effective will. The kingdom comes wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Wherever his power is active, he uses the analogy of electricity. It's like electricity. It's an electrical current that brings power into the world. So Jesus saying, as we read in, uh, on Friday in Matthew 10, the kingdom is at hand is like saying, the electricity's back on. Isn't that really good news? I am, uh, I, I mean, I, I was born and raised here my whole life, and I, I am easily traumatized when we lo- lose electricity at home. It's scary. For me, it's the AC, like, because it always seems to happen in July, doesn't it? I mean, it's n- it never happens in September, or not even September. September's worse than July. What am I talking about? Like, February. For me, it's like the AC and the food in the fridge. <laughs> I remember the last... The last uh, hurricane that blew through, we actually had this debate in our house that I was like, oh, the electricity, can we just get electricity for the air conditioning? My kids were like, I don't care about the air conditioning, we want Wi-Fi, you know? So for me, it's the AC, for, my, for everybody 18 and under, it's, the, it's Wi-Fi. But when the electricity goes out, there's a lot of things that you can't do that you can't do when it's on, right? You need the electricity to be able to do things that we've now become accustomed to. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what it would have been like to live in a world where there was no electricity and all of a sudden there was? Wow. What would that have been like? I'm not old enough to know that, just in case you were wondering. But when the electricity goes out, there's a lot of things that you can't do until it comes back on. The kingdom is a power source to make things different. It's like electricity. And there are really two things here that you see. So another two subpoints here as well. And the first is notice... The promise of the personal transformation that happens to all who belong to the kingdom. Isaiah's king will have the power, we're told here, to override natural instincts and impulses and to change not only us but all creatures into something new. So you have this, this strange language in verses 6 and 7. Look there where it says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The point being just this, the wolf doesn't naturally dwell with the lamb, the wolf naturally eats the lamb. Right? You with me? The lion doesn't naturally eat straw like an ox. He naturally eats the ox. But God is able to override these natural impulses. 
uh, there's a story, it's kind of obscure in 1 Kings chapter 17, but in, in there it says that God fed Elijah in this moment of real despair and despondency, depression that Elijah was in. He sent ravens to feed Elijah. Now, I was two days ago years old when I made the connection between ravenous and raven. Anybody else ever thought about that? Am I the only dummy in the room? Oh, ravenous, raven. Ravenous refers to something, a ferocious appetite, right? Because ravens don't feed, they consume, that's all they do. But God commanded ravens to feed, to feed, to feed Elijah to prove to the prophet his power. To take a bird who naturally just feeds and to make it unselfish enough to feed the prophet. The kingdom is a power source to override natural instincts and impulses. Everybody who's plugged into that power source becomes something new. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity made this point. He said, God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. He said, it isn't like teaching a horse to jump higher or better than it could before, but like the horse being changed into a winged creature so that it can soar over fences it would never have been able to jump before. Now, the language is similar to the language of new creation that we looked at a few weeks ago in Isaiah 65 and 66, which describes the remaking of the whole world there. But in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Listen to this. If anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, that's a challenging verse. And it's bad news. That verse is bad news if you don't want things to change. It's bad news if you don't want to change. But if you're sick of being you, then take heart. Or if you're worried about a friend, or if you see things in your kids that make you wonder if they will ever become functioning adults. If God, listen, if God can take, if God can command a lion to eat straw like an ox and not eat the ox, and at his command the lion will, then God can command you and me and grant us the power to become what he commands. Isn't that good news? It really is. Now let me encourage you with, with this if you're raising kids because that, that kid thing there. Um, I take my dogs for a walk every night and uh, we walk on, out onto the causeway at the entrance, entrance to our neighborhood and you've ever gone into Lakewood, you maybe have never even noticed, but there's the huge, these, this huge, I don't even know what you call it, like a grove, not really a grove, like a stand of bamboo canes. Uh, and, and I didn't know this. Did you know that bamboo takes three to five years to grow in the ground before it comes up out of the ground. So it grows for like three to five years in the ground before you even see something. And then, you know, all the growth for all of those years is underground in the roots. You can't see it, but it's happening. But then all of a sudden, the bamboo bursts up out of the ground and takes off and it grows 90 feet in five weeks. No visible growth and then explosive growth. And I just want to encourage you, I think that's the way it works with kids. <laughs> Sometimes you worry and you worry and you worry and then all if you know, oh, why was I so worried? And I think it's the way it works with a lot of us. Years and years of slow or no growth and then wham, something happens. And then as I was thinking about that, all I could think of was the, the Michael Scott meme. Okay, it's happening. Everybody, it's happening. Right? You know, from the office, you know what I'm talking about? If you know, you know. He who has ears, let him hear right there. But... If you haven't, look it up, but you'll get it. It's, you know, it's like, oh, oh, it's happening, it's happening. We've been waiting, and here it comes now. I digress. But the second thing 
that all of this language points to is not only the king's power for personal transformation, to override our natural impulses. Man, that's such great news. But we also see the king's power to bring peace. The image of the wolf and the lamb dwelling together, the leopard lying down with the young goat. These are images of reconciliation. Isaiah gets even more explicit in verses 8 and 9. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and he says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, this is important to Isaiah. Last week in chapter 9, we, we read it, but we uh, didn't talk about it. It's there. He talks about the combat boots and camo uniforms used in battle being burned in the fire. In chapter 2, earlier, you have the image of the people taking their swords and turning them into plowshares because there were no more wars to be fought. And that's what Isaiah is saying here as a part of our future too. And I, I think I can explain it without getting into the details with a single story. In the middle of World War I in 1914, there was a Christmas truce. And on Christmas Eve, while the English soldiers were huddled down in their trench, someone began to sing, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, for, you know, from the English ranks. But uh, what happened was from the German trench, which was just a few, you know, maybe 20, 25 yards away, another voice began to harmonize in German to the song. And so you have the British and the German soldiers joined in singing praise to the Lord who was their shepherd. And then the next morning, as the story went, British soldiers climbed out of their trench into no man's land carrying a football, and they started kicking the ball around in a pickup game. And then some of the German soldiers came out of their trench and joined them in, in England played Germany at football in no man's land on Christmas Day in the middle of the battlefield in France in 1914. And the very next morning, they began to kill one another again. Everything went back to normal. For one day... Allegiance to the true king and the kingdom brought hostilities to an end, and then it went right back to the normal. What the promise here is that one day, that day in the future, it will not just be one day but forever. War and violence and hostility and hate won't be a part of what is normal. Loyalty to the true king will not just cause us to love him, but also to love one another as we should. But let's not get too big picture here. Every time a friend sins against you and you forgive them and are reconciled, the wolf is lying down and dwelling with the lamb. The church is the model home of the new neighborhood of the kingdom. And in the church, we already see this beginning to happen because we have access to the electricity of God's love, which empowers us to be patient and bear with one another and forgive and keep going with one another when we feel like giving up. And we can do that because in Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. That's the electricity that makes being reconciled to one another possible. Paul says in Colossians, through Jesus, God has reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, as a nation, we can't seem to stop biting and devouring one another. But in the church, we love and we accept one another in our differences and even in our sins. We forgive and cover one another's sins. And when we do, every time we do, the kingdom establishes a beachhead in the world. But lastly, we got to finish and lastly, I want you to see that the character of the king and the, kingdom of, and the king, kingdom of the king, his beauty and his power, they deserve your enthusiasm. So let me just call you, church, rally to the king. Let's rally to him. It says, verse 12, verses 10 through 12, in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people and he will raise a signal for the nations and they will assemble the banished of Israel. I read that and all I can think of was Chris Evans as Captain America saying, Avengers assemble an endgame and the whole place just erupted because that's what everybody's been waiting like 20 movies for, right? Is that line? But I think that's right. The image is Jesus, because of his compelling beauty and the compelling vision of his kingdom in the earth, calling all his people to assemble under 
his banner to stand against the threat of evil together. One of God's name is the Lord, our banner. When the banner of the king was flown in the ancient world, all those who had pledged fealty to the king were duty-bound to assemble. The Bible also says that his banner over us is love, that our whole identity is found in his love, and so we are compelled by his love to live not for ourselves but for him. He is deserving of your loyalty, of your enthusiasm. No one else is. There is no other one who is worthy, but he is worthy. But here's what I want to say before I finish. Enthusiasm for him requires you and I to also be enthusiastic about our oneness. Enthusiastic about putting aside grudges and whatever accumulated hurts we might have and all of our resentments and jealousies, our hardness towards one another and rallying as one under the banner of his love. I love what he says here in verse 14. He talks about Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines and together plunder the peoples. The church of Jesus is getting crushed because we refuse to come together. Evil continues to have its day because we refuse to come together. If you live in envy and unforgiveness, you are giving sin the upper hand, not only in your life, but you're giving it in other people's lives. How selfish of you to do that. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to wag my finger at you, but you get what I mean, right? Let's refuse to do that. Out of love for God, we love one another. Rallying to him, we rally to each other too. A lot of times I can tell you, if I've lost my enthusiasm for Jesus, it's because of something in my relationship with somebody else. There's discouragement there, but when the king comes, we will be one. When he comes, we will be one. But that also means that anytime we put aside our envy, our hurts, our complaints, and we forgive and we rally to each other as friends, the kingdom is coming into the world. So we can celebrate that. But let me just finish with this. So what if you just can't? What if you hear the call to rally to Jesus and you know he's worthy of your enthusiasm, but you just can't find your enthusiasm? Well, here's what I would leave you with. There's a line in Isaiah chapter 9, at the very end of that famous passage, we looked at it last week, and I didn't even get to it because there's just so much there. But after Isaiah talks about the child with, with the government on his shoulders, he ends that very famous passage with, the, with these words. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here's what I would say to you. If you've lost your zeal, that's okay. And it's okay because he hasn't lost his zeal for you. He's deserving of your zeal, but don't make that into a law that crushes you. Your relationship with him is not sustained by your zeal for him, but by his zeal for you. When you have no love for him, or when you have no love for others, his love for you is unchanged. Though your passion wanes, his does not. What can thaw a frozen heart? Disney knows. <laughs> Olaf the snowman knows. I mean, don't you know? What can thaw a frozen heart? Only an act of true love. And that's what we should be left with here, right? Don't leave today worrying over whether your enthusiasm has gone cold and where it's gone and how to get it back. That misses the whole point instead. Look to the king who in an act of true love to you loved you to his own hurt. Look to him full of beauty and power. His zeal will do it. Until then, we, we sing and pray in a minor king a minor key, which we didn't sing the song today, we, but we sing our longing 
uh, in this hymn that we often sing at this time of year, O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Pray with me, would you? So that is our prayer, Lord Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us, that you would indeed come. Uh, We need you to come. Would you come to your people? Come and change us. Come and make us one. Come and unthaw, come and thaw our hearts. Make them warm with love and devotion to you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead, you can, that's fine. Amen. He is worthy. So rally to him and rally to one another and go now and put darkness on the run in the world because that's what we've been called to do. And as you go, know this to be true. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.